Welcome everyone to Beth Takoon and this series called Spiritual Seasons. This week, the progression through the Torah pauses for the very special moed of Shavuot. So we will discuss Shavuot today. As we get started, I want to make a point about the idea of holidays. In English, we get the word holiday from the two words holy and day. Now, when we're talking about biblical holidays in particular, these truly are holy days. If God chooses something and sets it apart for special purpose, it is holy. If God sets apart certain days in the calendar for special attention and devotion to him, for bringing special offerings to him, then he has made these days holy. They are set aside for him and for his special purposes. And if we are believers and followers of God, if he is our king, then these are not optional days to do with as we please. God has claimed these days. Who are we to take what is holy and treat it as common? It's an affront to God. We've been focusing on this idea of holiness in recent weeks because recent Torah portions have mentioned this word holy so much. And one of the commandments we learned establishes that when something becomes holy, it can't go back to being common. If someone sets aside an animal for God, it becomes holy and it can't be taken back. If you decide you want to substitute a different animal, both become holy. Both the first one and the second become holy and set aside for God. Becoming holy is a one-way street. And the idea of holiness is very, very important to God, our King, our Creator. How could we now take these days lightly? Praise the Lord for lifting the veil on the Gentiles, as he is now doing around the world. But once we see better what he has called holy, there's no looking away. Once we know it is offensive to him when we trample on his holy days. I understand that we live in a world that largely does not yet align with God's calendar. Right now, we simply must do everything we possibly can to guard and protect these days. Let's turn now to Shavuot specifically. So we'll start with the basic commandments and a couple of traditions. Shavuot means weeks. We sometimes call it the Feast of Weeks. It is not a minor moed, but one of the big three, one of the three pilgrimage festivals. As we reckon it today, as we calculate it today, Shavuot is the 50th day after the special Sabbath rest day that begins unleavened bread. So the first day of unleavened bread, that's a rest day. And starting on the day after that, the 50th day is Shavuot. Shavuot is the second of the two first fruits Moedim that bookend the Omer, the counting of the Omer. So the first day of the Omer is the first fruits of the barley harvest offered by the priest at the temple on behalf of the nation. That's what we usually call first fruits. It's the first day of the Omer. Shavuot also is described in the Torah as a first fruit celebration. It's an offering from the first fruits of the wheat crop. So this means the whole 49-day Omer period begins and ends with two days set aside for offering first fruits to God. Unlike the raw barley flour at the beginning, the second first fruits offering at Shavuot is to be made of two loaves of leavened bread made from wheat. Uh, It is a day of rest. That's another commandment. In Deuteronomy 16, Moses describes how the Israelites are to gather up everyone in the household and take them to Jerusalem for Shavuot, including servants, Levites staying in your house, sojourners, orphans, and widows. Once there, all are to bring voluntary offerings and rejoice before the Lord. The ceremonies for traveling together as a village and for being welcomed as a village into Jerusalem 
at Shavuot are really extraordinarily colorful and fascinating. It involves music and decorating the animals that are in your train with you, and uh, it's very fascinating. Shavuot is one of the main points in the year for the people themselves to bring first fruits offerings to the temple, as opposed to the priest bringing a first fruit offering on their behalf, like at Passover. At Shavuot, the priests are still bringing an offering, like we said, of two loaves of bread on behalf of all the people, but the people themselves are also now stepping up to offer their own first fruits to God. In fact, Shavuot begins a whole portion of the year in which the people can come to Jerusalem with their first fruit offerings, and especially the seven species of the land, though anything could be brought and given to God. This window for bringing first fruits stretches from Shavuot until Sukkot, although I, I do believe I've read that some said the window went as far as Hanukkah for bringing first fruits. But it starts here, these personal first fruits at Shavuot. So speaking of first fruits, let me mention here that tradition clearly associates particularly the Shavuot first fruits with a reaping from the nations. All during the counting of the Omer, we are traditionally reading Psalm 67, which is focused squarely on the harvest from the nations. And the book of Ruth, which is traditionally read on Shavuot, has a Gentile focus in that Ruth is a woman from Moab, which is present-day Jordan, so not too far away. But she is grafted into Israel, becoming part of the line of King David. And so she becomes an ancestor of the Messiah. Regarding traditions related to Shavuot, beyond this connection to a, a human harvest, the primary tradition that has come to dominate Shavuot is the idea that the Torah began to be given on Shavuot, the sixth day of the third month, the sixth of Sivan. And that's when tradition says God spoke forth the Ten Commandments, which is the beginning of the giving of the Torah. The text states, that Israel arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai on the first of the third month. So Israel would have been given a few days to set up camp and to rest before being told to prepare for meeting God in another three days. So if you ask an observant Jewish child or Jewish person what Shavuot is about, they will probably not say it's a harvest festival, which is what the verbiage in the text in the Bible is about, they will say instead that it is a celebration of the giving of the Torah. And it must have been given very close to the date of Shavuot. So after these base level details about Shavuot, let's turn now to going a little deeper. Like every Torah portion, and like all the other annual Moedim, Shavuot doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a progression of salvation. It's what I sometimes call God's yearly curriculum. So how does Shavuot fit? What I'd like you um, to get from this discussion is a sense of how all of God's details work together to tell one story, salvation. It's always that one story. So we'll dip into details from human development from childhood to adolescence and adulthood. We'll dip into um, agricultural details and from this picture and from that picture and this progression and that progression and, and we'll see how these relate to Shavuot. Um, but all of these, uh, all these different stories are in their different ways telling the story of Shavuot we have various commandments and stories in the word connected to Shavuot, both in the Tanakh and in the Brit Hadashah. And those commandments and stories are filled with many details. And none of those details are random. They all fit into a larger story, a larger progression. And that progression is called salvation. 
when we start to see that larger picture, we can look at this detail from this story and that one, from the account of the giving of the Torah or the account in Acts 2, that Shavuot account, and we can say, oh, that detail is there because it fits into the pattern like this and like this, and many things start to come to life. So I hope you get sort of a sense of that through the teaching today. So in order to see how Shavuot fits, we need to go back to the beginning. At Rosh Kodesh Nisan, right, the first day of the first month, uh, the cycle begins again at a higher level. The first of Nisan is most famous for the day the tabernacle was first set up, and we witness the God of the universe coming to dwell with his specially chosen people in a holy home built by human hands. God coming to be with his people is the coming of light, a new light. And by that light, we suddenly look around us and say, why am I feeling so closed in, so trapped by the flesh? I'm a slave. I mean, it's not that we've gone backwards. It's that the new light helps us to see the darkness remaining within us that we couldn't see before. And God is going to help us take another step higher. And so we cry out and say, Lord, help me. I give you everything once again. Set me free once again. So in the middle of the first month, right, Nisan 14, we come to Passover, which is God's response to our cry for freedom. He does a very powerful work at that time for us, a work that we have very little to do with. And one of the things that happens at that time is that he gives us a seed of salvation for the year, a seed that contains within it new life for the spirit, soul, and body. And we connected those three to Pesach, unleavened bread, and first fruits in the teaching we did for Passover. As the barley harvest is beginning in the fields in Israel, God is placing within us the precious gift of a new year's salvation, a seed of that salvation. This is accomplished by the blood of the Lamb, as every step of salvation is. When Yeshua went to the cross for us one Passover two millennia ago, he purchased for us not just one isolated salvation experience, but what he purchased was continual renewal, year by year, month by month, week by week, day by day. His blood paid for cycles of renewal. And praise the Lord for that. We're not stuck. So in that Passover teaching, we pointed out that at Passover, God is doing a very, very high work far above us. And so what is the high work he's doing at that time? It's the work of transferring us a bit further, if, if we've already been walking with God, transferring us further from one spiritual kingdom to another, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And we said that, maybe a bit ironically, we experience this very high work down here as a very low reflection, a very physically grounded reflection. So for Israel, God's high work of transferring from one kingdom to another is reflected down below as Israel leaving Egypt right? Go from this kingdom to this kingdom. Go from the Egyptian kingdom out into the Midbar, into the wilderness. It's a change of location. So in other words, as God does an act of empowerment in a very high place, what he enables us to do is to make an adjustment in a very low place. In the case of Israel, changing their physical lo location does not yet touch their soul deeply. Though a move like that does require a good deal of faith as they step out onto that dry, dusty road and start to walk with God. In a way, though, God had shown himself so strongly, devastating Egypt so utterly and causing Egypt to fear Israel so greatly that God 
had kind of pushed them out. They actually didn't have a lot of choice at the time. And so we also see that free will starts at a low point and increases as we mature and as we go around the cycle of the year. And so that's another thing to track as we move around the year is our increasing free will. It's still not a huge amount of free will at Mount Sinai. You know, the sages say, God held the mountain over our heads and said, if you don't accept the Torah, I'm going to drop this on you. You know, so what they're saying is there, there was, still wasn't a ton of free will at that time. At Purim is when we really talk about having a lot of free will when God is very hidden. What we will see as the year progresses is that God provides an empowerment in a certain area, and we are enabled to respond below. But God's empowerment starts high and works low. And our reflection starts low and works high. God starts high above us and descends to an empowerment in the mind. So he starts way up here above us. And then his empowerment moves down to the mind and to the heart and then even lower in the body. Our reflection starts down below, even we could say almost outside of our body. In Israel's case, they change location. And then it enters the lowest part of, of the soul. And then it keeps going upward. So again, this is the reflection of what God is doing in empowerment is, is what we are able to do, the, the area we are able to do work in. And that goes in the opposite direction. And that's how reflection works. God doesn't ask a newborn to do work that only an adult can do. When we are young, and he is doing a very high work of empowerment, he only asks us to start at a very low place with our part to play in our salvation journey. So we have a part to play in this journey, but we can't do a lot at first, and we can't do an intense like intellectual work, let's say, at the beginning. So truly, God's incredible design for salvation is a wonder to behold as we begin to dig into some of its secrets, this plan of salvation. And as God lifts a veil in these end times to permit us to see even a few of the inner workings of salvation, even just in getting a small glimpse of the wheels within wheels, as Ezekiel describes it. I don't know if that's what he's talking about, and what the same thing I'm talking about here, but um, it makes me think of wheels within wheels sometimes. And um, even getting just a glimpse of that, we just have to stand back and say, what a wonder you have wrought. So this particular idea of how God's area of empowerment descends from high to low, as our area of work ascends from low to high, while we're traveling around this uh, circle of the year, um, it's kind of come into more sharp view for me as I was preparing this teaching this week. And um, it's really a powerful help for, for understanding Shavuot in particular. So we'll keep going with this idea for a bit now, and if it's not making sense to you, it might, with a couple more examples here. So actually, this really needs a visual aid, but you'll just have to make do with an outline for right now. Uh, there's a link below the video to an outline. So let's return now to the er early part of the calendar. If we experience a rebirth at Passover, what is the period of the counting of the Omer? So what follows birth, right? Birth at Passover. Well, infancy and childhood follow birth. Every year we go through a time of infancy and childhood during the Omer, first steps with God on a new journey at a new level. And so God is very much relating to us as a parent with a child at the beginning of the year and through the Omer. God is strong and protective 
and also firm to discipline at this point. And we can see all of these parental qualities as he leads Israel in the wilderness from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Also a lot of patience. A parent of a newborn has to have a lot of patience. We see that too in this story of the different events from moving from Egypt to Mount Sinai. So the work that a parent does is still a very high work that mostly involves training the child's will and instilling faith, training the child to submit to authority and establishing faith in the child. So these are such high areas within the psyche that they still haven't quite entered the intellect, right? It hasn't still above us, still above the head. And God uh, can't really empower the intellect yet because a child is not yet capable of deep intellectual thought. On the other hand, the work we are given to do as he empowers us through the putting faith into us, uh, through helping to train our will, but the work that we are able to do during that time moves from something that's very external and physical to our nefesh, a work in our nefesh. So why am I saying that? Recall that the sages have said that the Omer period, begun by the harvest of barley, is when we are being empowered to work on the animal soul, the nefesh, the lowest part of our soul, which we can think of as our instincts and animal drives. Barley, they point out, is primarily animal fodder, right? It's a coarser grain that um, wheat is the main grain for people, barley more for animals. So our reflected work is moving upward from a place of base physicality to the lowest part of the soul during the Omer, the nefesh. So we come now to Shavuot and the giving of the Torah. Finally, now God is saying, okay, you're ready now for me to do a work of empowerment for the mind, the intellect. You're old enough now and mature enough for that. And so he says, here's the Torah. Here's the textbook for life. Study this, memorize this, and do what you can now to conform your life to this. And so on the one hand, we do a work of receiving the Torah with the mind at this time. And this is a foundational intellectual work. But if you think about it, it's really God giving. It's really, in fact, Israel was kind of waiting around for Moses to receive the Torah at the time. But there was a foundation for an intellectual growth and an intellectual filling that God was doing during that time. Um, but we're not yet mature enough for a deep understanding of the Torah, right? They're just getting the Ten Commandments and waiting for Moses at the time. There's not a lot of deep understanding of Torah happening right here. Um, and so the reflected work that we are being especially empowered to do, remember we keep moving up. We were at the nefesh in the last step. Well, the area that... Um, we will find we can make real progress in during the summer is one step above the nefesh. And what is that area? Well, Grant has often taught us about the nefesh on the one hand and the neshama on the other, two sides of the human soul. The neshama being spiritual, the nefesh being the physical side. But there's a third that the sages include that is between the two. There's a step above the nefesh that Grant would not really talk about much. He was trying to simplify things a bit for us. So this middle one is called the ruach. It is the seat of the emotions. The ruach is described as moving back and forth between the neshama and the nefesh, between the intellect and the instincts, between the head and the gut. So we enter now into a period wherein we are being empowered to work on the ruach, the seat of the emotions. Now let me add here that I have not heard a Jewish 
teaching linking Shavuot to the beginning of a season in which we are empowered to work on the emotions. I haven't heard that. So that's me connecting some dots as God leads. So take it with a grain of salt, as, as you should everything, really. My understanding of the calendar continues to develop as I continue to walk this road with God and with you through this spiritual seasons series. Um, But you see, believers in Yeshua have a few more dots to work with, to connect. Um, A few more dots over those who have not yet come to accept Yeshua as the Messiah. And when I say that the area of the soul called the Ruach is being opened for a deeper work at Shavuot, a believer in Yeshua who has read the book of Acts immediately makes a connection. Acts 2, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. So Spirit in Hebrew is Ruach, right? This this middle area of the soul is called Ruach. And um, the Spirit is called Ruach. And Pentecost is the Greek name for Shavuot. They were gathered together in one place at Shavuot. So in other words, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is the same as the coming of the Ruach at Shavuot. It was exactly on the day of Shavuot that this Spirit was poured out on them and like fire, cloven flames above the disciples' heads. As we are enabled to work on our emotions during this period of the year, we are given the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Ruach. Pray in the season ahead that the long, hot summer will be a time where the Lord helps us to master our emotions. Trust that he not only is going to honor that request, but also that he has built this energy for growth, this specific energy for growth in this area at this time into the very fabric of the universe and every fiber of your being, every cell of your body made with the same pattern that we are seeing here in the year. Every cell resonating with this pattern and with the seasons as we travel through them. We can get control of our emotions, as difficult as that might seem. There's a part of the year where even our very body resonates with the season that is um, empowering us to make progress in that area. So to summarize, um, those sort of overlapping progressions of top to bottom, bottom to top. God's area of empowerment first involves kingdom, way above us, then the areas of the will and faith, these are lower, and then the intellect, and finally now we're entering uh, the body. Our area of reflected work, on the other hand, first involves the purely physical, then the animal drives and instincts, and then the emotions. So speaking of the emotions, let's turn back now to the progression of human development, which is one of our important keys for unlocking what's happening in the calendar, right? I said we dip into this picture of salvation and that picture of salvation. So in what stage of life are we most affected in a profound way by our emotions? In what stage of our lives are we particularly tasked with throwing reins onto our passions and disappointments and sadnesses and fears? In what stage of life are we most apt to while away a whole day in the mindless joy of a spontaneous road trip or a game that has so enthralled us that we stay awake a whole night in a fight to the death with our friends? Shavuot is our entrance into adolescence. It's adolescence where we experience these huge mood swings, especially Adolescence is when we can be absolutely driven by our emotions and crippled 
by our emotions. So I have a friend who is a counselor for middle school students in public schools here in Ohio. And she said this uh, to me recently, every teen is depressed. Uh, this is a mother of teens, even, and um, in her work, she, they're, they're all depressed. That's just, it simply comes with the territory of being an adolescent. So um, we've moved from at Passover, from rebirth, to an infancy and childhood in the Omer. We've arrived at adolescence and uh, exploding emotions, we can say. So Rabbi Aaron Raskin says that the Zohar compares receiving uh, the Torah at Mount Sinai to a bar or bat mitzvah. So this is right on the cusp of adolescence. It is the age that a child enters a higher stage of life by becoming personally responsible. They're responsible to what? Well, bar mitzvah is son of the commandment, and bat mitzvah is daughter of the commandment. When a child is bar or bat mitzvahed, they take on personal responsibility, personal responsibility for upholding the Torah. So we're coming to Shavuot and our bar bat mitzvah. Um, that happens for us every year, entering adolescence. So um, this is exactly what we remember at Shavuot, this, this taking on a personal responsibility, this moment when God reached out to Israel and said, do you want relationship with me? And the people said, yes, we do. And he gave them the textbook, the Torah. And when it is, so when is it that we, um, becomes, that we become professional book slingers, textbook slingers, and just throw them, throw them on our backs, you know, with ease? That's when we're a teenager, that we become so heavily invested in textbooks. So let's make a couple more points here about teenagers as we begin this phase called adolescence. First, let me say that I was pleasantly surprised by the teens I worked with while teaching at a Christian high school uh, for five years, right up until COVID started. So my last quarter of teaching was done online because of COVID. But go back five years uh, before that last quarter, as I was preparing to teach American students for the first time, I was nervous. I had recently returned from overseas. I had um, not trained to be a teacher. And as I thought back to my own experiences in public school growing up in Stowe, I was remembering how hard we could be on teachers, especially substitute teachers. And I thought, I'd have a lot of trouble with the teens at Lake Center Christian. But you know what? I didn't. They were a delight. So don't get me wrong. There were those days where I lost my cool and shocked everyone, and myself included. Uh, but for the most part, I found the students to be well-behaved, generous, funny, and largely willing to do what they were being asked to do as long as they understood clearly what they were supposed to do. So yes, being a teen is a painfully difficult time to go through for everyone. It's a time filled with awkward missteps, but it doesn't have to be a time marked by open rebellion. That's not a given. Teens are in a difficult spot, especially because they're being motivated largely by fear and duty rather than love. They're not old enough yet to be primarily motivated by love. And it's difficult to be motivated by only duty. You have to drag yourself to do everything. You don't understand why you're doing it. So I found the students I worked with to be respectful, but I didn't find them eager to work. As much as I grew to like them, I knew that most of them didn't want to do the learning I was trying to get them to do. I knew that Few of them enjoyed learning to write a coherent essay. So I was an English teacher for most of that time. And learning to write is tough work. I can assure you that grading a half-hearted essay as a teacher is harder than writing a half-hearted essay. It's like 
what are you trying to say here? I can't figure out. I've, I've spent a half hour now on these two paragraphs. I can't figure out what you're trying to say. <laughs> but um, many of my students simply drag themselves to the computer to write, and the product lacked heart. And some of them were great, amazing essays. But um, when we perform from duty rather than the heart, it shows And most of them lack the life experience and depth of understanding and foresight to know that what I was teaching them would be profoundly useful in life. The ability to write well, the ability to organize and present your thoughts, the ability to generate thoughts in the first place. We spent some time just, well, how do I come up with ideas to write about? So this idea of an adolescent being primarily motivated by duty has a big role to play in what's coming next in the calendar, in the spiritual calendar. The stumbles and the separation of the three weeks which come in the summer. It's a time of mourning. It includes Tishbaav, among other days. So the problem with obeying out of duty rather than love is that there is little power there to stick to it or do what you're doing well. As God opens us to a deeper level of Torah observance at Shavuot, we are being set up for a fall. It's just the nature of a teenager, of an adolescent, to be motivated mostly by duty and not by love. In a way, we're being set up for a fall, because that doesn't last. We can't keep doing good work that way. Why does God do that? Why would God set us up to fall? Well, Rabbi Raskin brings from Rabbi Schneerson that God puts man in a situation that he should fall because every descent is for a greater ascent. What follows the three weeks, right? So we have this time of Shavuot. We're making these promises to God, to become his special people, to obey his Torah. It's followed by some missteps and the three weeks of mourning in the high summer. But what comes after that is the month of Elul, the sixth month. And that's an entire month of repentance. And now we're getting to the aim of the whole thing here, at least this part of the calendar. Somewhere in this whole process of learning Torah, and falling, and rising again, we see ourselves better. We see ourselves better than we ever have before. And we put that before God, and we say, I see it. I, I, I made the promise. I fell because now I see what's going on inside here, and I don't like it, and I'm sorry for it. Have mercy on me. And he does. And in raising us up from that place, he lifts us to a higher place than we were before we fell. So expect the falling that follows Shavuot, but just keep walking. Keep walking. In a sense, it's part of the plan designed to show us what's really going on inside. And, you know, we see this in Moses' words to the people and in Joshua's words to the people They just flat out say, you can't do this, you're going to fall. (laughs) But then they're quick to say, but when you do fall, um, God will pick you up. God will pick you up. And so they're they're quite realistic in, in what they're, it's built in. It's built in. So the last point I want to make here connected to this word adolescence is the idea that adolescence is a meeting point, a coming together of childhood on the one hand and adulthood on the other. And Shavuot and the third month of Sivan, which we have now entered, are very much about this point of meeting. Now, it's a first point of meeting, a beginning of reunification. We're not really fully there yet. And isn't it the case that a teenager is experiencing more of a battle between two life phases than peace, right? It's a a meeting point, but it's also a a place of not exactly a peace. That's not how I would define my adolescence anyway. So it's not a time for peace, but it's a time for 
a certain kind of bridging to happen. And at Shavuot, the right and the left are brought together. Heaven and earth are brought together. Male and female are brought together, but not yet with a depth of intimacy. They're brought together, but they're not fully connected yet. So remember that when we applied the three steps of ancient Jewish marriage to the yearly pattern, that was back in the Parsha Mishpatim teaching, we described the second step, uh, which is what Shavuot is, the second step, Passover is the first step of ancient Jewish marriage, Shavuot the second. And we described that second point as engagement. Words are spoken that connect. Promises are given that connect. And promises are powerful connectors, but the fullness of physical intimacy and cohabitation is not for this moment. The second stage of marriage we're talking about is called eruzin, uh, but it has another name, kiddushin, which implies kadosh, holy, right? Setting aside, setting aside for a special purpose. This second phase involves promises and the chuppah and a ketubah, and we see all of that at Mount Sinai, which is a stage of marriage. But after the young groom and bride agree to the marriage, the engaged couple part ways in that ancient way of being married. They part ways to prepare separately for marriage. The young man goes to build onto his family's home, and the bride goes to focus on her personal preparations that she will need for marriage. So, Shavuot is a point um, of connection that looks ahead to a much deeper connection. And we see this idea of a coming together of right and left, uh, but not yet fully um, connected together in many ways for Shavuot. We see, first of all, two leavened loaves specially offered by the priests on the altar at Shavuot. Leavened loaves are loaves that have been given time to rise, to expand. They have had time, time to reach a level of of maturity like an adolescent has. We also see this coming together of two sides at Shavuot in the two tablets with uh, the Ten Commandments, five and five, a right and a left tablet. In the book of Acts, the tongues like fire that indicate the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit are described as cloven, as divided. The mazel of this third month, the month of Sivan, is Tiomim, the twins, Gemini, Right, You can't get more (laughs) of a picture of these two things that are very connected, but not quite, um, than Gemini, twins. The hush of the month of Sivan, the bodily ability that's associated with the month, is walking. But what does walking have to do with this? Well, (laughs) how do we walk? We walk with the, the right foot and the left foot. Right and left, right and left. The tribe of the month, so there's a tribe associated with each month, the tribe of Zebulun, and he's paired always with Issachar in Jewish history, twin tribes that supported each other. Issachar is the tribe of the second month, and Zebulun the third. And there's even a hint, I think, of this right and left in the story of Ruth, which we read at Shavuot where the two Jewish brothers marry Moabite women, one of which ends up turning to the left and the other to the right, right? Orpah and Ruth. We are being given the chance now to lay the foundation for a future connecting together of opposites. It's a time to set ourselves in the way and make promises, set ourselves on this path of reunification and to make promises, and ask God to fill us with the strength to be faithful to those promises. Remember that the word Shavuot, yes, it means weeks, but it also means promises or oaths. We are literally at a holiday named promises. It is a time for each of us to reach up, to connect to a God who is coming down, to the top of the mountain, 
to meet us, right? Moses goes up that mountain and God comes down on it. It's a time for husbands to reach reach out to deepen their connection with their wives, for parents to do the same with children and think about how am I relating to them and promise at least to yourself, I can do this part better with that connection. It's a time for a kind of connecting together of our own beings internally, the spiritual uh, and the animal sides of the soul being connected together through the ruach, right? The ruach, that part of the soul that goes between the two. So I want to circle back for a minute to the topic of the spirit because this whole web of connections for Shavuot we are arriving at via the salvation pattern, all these different ideas, these different details that we are, that are kind of connected together with Shavuot. Um, they help us to understand a certain aspect of the role of the Spirit, which is something that we need a lot of help with, understanding the role of the Spirit. So the whole context here for the giving of the Spirit on Shavuot in Acts 2 is showing us that the Spirit has a bridge role. In some ways, we know that. We can feel that the Spirit has a bridge role, but it helps to see all these other pictures of this bridging phase that we can apply to the Spirit, all these different details connected to the commandments of, of Shavuot, for example. So we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as being, you know, maybe the highest or, and the most spiritual of the faces of God we see in Scripture. But remember that this word ruach also means wind. And what is wind? It certainly has a tangible element to it, a physical element. Element Wind can lift up a house or can move a house or destroy a house. But on its own, without a tree to bend or a flag to move, wind is invisible. Um, it's between the visible and the invisible. And so this is what the Spirit is. The Spirit goes between, from here to there, back and forth. It's, it's between the visible and the invisible, in a way. So it's really God the Father who is portrayed as being the highest above, the most set apart. The Spirit has the bridge role, and then Yeshua, the Son, that face of God, is the most tangible face of God. So the role of the Spirit like John the Baptist, who we associate with the Holy Spirit, is to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. How does he do that? He's a bridge. He's a bridge in the, uh, he's a bridge to the coming of the Messiah. How does he do that? Well, he's described as a tutor, for one thing. And when do we spend the most time in our lives with tutors and teachers? When we are teenagers. So the tutor helps us to understand the textbook, which is the Torah. The Holy Spirit tutor leads us into all truth. And we read that verse in the Brit Hadashah. So being led into truth is one aspect of being prepared for the coming of the Messiah. But the point of this leading into truth is to bring us to repentance. It is humility and repentance that are the proper foundation for receiving the Messiah when he comes. John's message and baptism were focused on repentance. John said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. The Holy Spirit is described as bringing conviction, conviction for sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Conviction leads to repentance. And in the calendar, what is the judgment to come? It is the judgment of the ten days of awe. It's all falling together. All these pieces fit together. It's really amazing to see. So the ten days of awe are the first ten days of the seventh month. We have a whole sixth month of Elul dedicated to repentance. Ten very intense days at the beginning of the seventh month. 
And so that which the Spirit is teaching, that which the Spirit is leading us into truth is designed to lead us to repentance. Um, And after that judgment, after that judgment at that is to come, that is traditionally associated with those 10 days of awe in the seventh month, then we're able to receive Yeshua. And when does that happen? At Sukkot, when Yeshua tabernacles among us. So that's the point where deep intimacy begins at Sukkot. That's the point of the third stage of marriage, which is where that deep intimacy and cohabitation begin. So as we finish up this deeper dive into Shavuot, let's focus on a few practical suggestions. Uh, Well, we mentioned one earlier, and it was to kind of meditate on, let's say, your relationship with your wife or your husband, if you have a spouse, and to to think about how you're connected and how you can improve that connection and to make some promises and some plans. Um, But another one here is, I would say, open yourself up to a new work, which is the beginning of a new revelation of Torah. God gave humanity the Torah 3,400 years ago or so, but that's not enough. We have to receive it yearly and monthly, and weekly, and daily. And now is a very special time for that to happen in the year. Trust that he is doing this now, making the Torah available to us now in in a new way. Rabbi Alon Anava brings from the Arizal that the night of Shavuot determines one's connection to the Torah for an entire year. So I don't quite know if that's the case, but understand that we are positioning ourselves now in relation to the Torah, an attitude of submission toward God through submission to his Torah. We are actively submitting and taking on the Torah again right now. So the suggestion from our Jewish brothers is that we stay up all night learning Torah if we can, or stay up as long as we can. Rabbi Anava explains that it's not just about learning Torah all night. It's about humbling ourselves before God. We say to him, I want this, and I need this. I'm willing to forgo my personal comfort for this because I want to be drawn closer to you through this Torah. In order to receive a filling, we must first empty ourselves. And so this is an attitude of humility an attitude of humility. Just say to God, what I think I know, maybe I don't know. Lord, just show me a better way. Open your Torah to me again. So another suggestion here, Rabbi Anava says that we should focus on love for others at this time, which is the heart of the Torah and the summation of the Torah. And love is expressed through giving. We express our love through giving. So work on giving at this time. Rabbi Anava says to pay attention to those places where you expect to receive, where you want to take, and turn that around so that you give. He says we should try to take as little as possible from this world. And um, so where you think, oh, I'm entitled to take, try to turn that around somehow and see how you can give in that situation. So lastly here, a warning. Adolescence is a time when the authorities uh, over us are handing some authority to us, giving us more control over our lives to make our own decisions. It's easy to trip right after Shavuot. So again, the pattern is that there is a fall after Shavuot. You might find that God has removed some kind of filter for you that was only there by his grace up until now. This happened to me one time, just as Shavuot was ending. And something just came out of my mouth with a friend, and I just thought, how did that happen? (laughs) You know, I was shocked. So be on guard 
uh, we are stepping up to make a promise now to walk according to his Torah, which is love for him and others. And that's going to be tested. Expect it. And though it may be inevitable that we stumble, we still fight to stay upright as much as we can. I mean, there might be some stumbling ahead, but we, we, we try to not as much as possible. Um, may he bless us that we, we could, you know, if we got to stumble, that we get back up as quickly as possible, at least. So let's turn now uh, to a focus on Yeshua in this discussion. On the surface, Shavuot seems perhaps the least directly connected to Yeshua of all the annual Moedim. Of course, we know that Yeshua is the Word. Yeshua is the Torah that God speaks for, through which all of creation is made. Right in John, he's described as the Word made flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that we are made for the Father and we are made through Yeshua. So Yeshua is very much the center of this moed in the form of the Torah spoken forth by God. But I want to make a connection here to uh, the discussion about the Spirit by drawing our attention to a verse from Acts 2, the chapter where we see the outpouring of the Spirit upon the disciples at Shavuot. Acts 2.32-33 says, This Yeshua God raised up. Right, this, this is Peter speaking on the day of Shavuot. And he says, This Yeshua God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Yeshua, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what I want to point out here is that the Spirit comes through Yeshua. God gives the Spirit to Yeshua, and Yeshua pours out the Spirit on us. God pours the Spirit through Yeshua to us. So listen again to the passage. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Everything from the Father comes through the Son to us, including the Spirit. We exist through him, through the Son. God gives to us through him and no other. And he is our ultimate example of how we are to be a pipe and not a bucket, as Grant would say. We are to be a conduit of the Spirit to this world, as Yeshua is, not a bucket that holds the Spirit and God's blessing inside of us, like a bucket. Well, again, part of what I'm aiming to do in all of these teachings, these Spiritual Seasons teachings, is to show how every detail in the Word and in the world are all working together. They're all planned. They're all telling one story, the story of salvation. When we glimpse this, we just stand in awe of our Creator. And these details also extend to every detail of our own lives. We're not just reading of these details that mesh together in the lives of the patriarchs, in the lives of uh, in Israel's life. It's our own lives too. And so, I just mentioned Grant a minute ago. It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidental detail that Grant's last Shabbat leading BT was just within a couple days of Shavuot. This is particularly appropriate because as I see it, the task God gave Grant was leading a group of people out of a narrow place and back to the Torah. This is the role Moses occupies, a prophetic role that reaches out with a firm but loving hand to bring correction and clarity to God's Word, the Torah. It's a role deeply connected to Shavuot. So once that phase was completed, Grant and Robin were free to step away. And we are now as a body of Beth Tikkun in the period of development that follows, a period 
that is marked by a deeper intimacy. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. You can check out the outline linked below the video. May God make us a people who humbly receive the word, knowing that in doing so, we are embracing Yeshua, and it is salvation for us. May we be a people with whom Yeshua can trust the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. May we be a people who live the Torah of love for God and our neighbors. And may we fully rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.